Hey, welcome. Glad you're here. Thanks for being here. If you want to open up your Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And on your way there, if you want to ask the Holy Spirit to fulfill Jesus' promise to guide us into the truth. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. When was the last time that someone embarrassed you? Or better, when was the last time you embarrassed someone else? Uh, For me, it was just about 12 hours ago, Amanda and I went and saw a movie last night, I guess almost 24 hours now, Um, and uh, I have this really bad habit of talking out loud to characters that I don't like in the movies, and so, uh, you know, that can be embarrassing if you uh, are sitting next to me, but uh, I don't know what to tell you, I'm not going to stop, so uh, if they start behaving better in those movies, I will stop talking to them, right? When was the last time that you embarrassed someone else or you were embarrassed of someone else? Because if you can think of something, then you are in the perfect frame of mind to read 2 Timothy. Because that's the question on the table in chapter 1. Is Timothy embarrassed of Paul? And more importantly, is Timothy embarrassed of Jesus? Remember, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter from prison to his true son in the faith. Timothy was not a biological son. He was a spiritually adopted son of Paul, a ministry partner, missionary friend, uh, shared a lot of great times with Paul. But now Paul is in prison. And as I mentioned last week, there are two stories going on about Paul. The story he's telling is, I'm in prison because of my faithfulness to Jesus. Uh, I'm preaching the gospel. I'm sharing with others. But it's a hostile message to the Roman Empire, to people people in power and to those seeking a uh, enlightened state. And so I've been thrown into prison. The other story that was being told about Paul is Paul is faithful to Jesus, but if he just dialed it down a little bit, he probably wouldn't be in prison. And maybe he doesn't really need to be so much Paul. If he were less Paul, then you know he could be more normal. And so you had a lot of people abandoning Paul, turning their back on him. And now Timothy is maybe hanging in the balance. And that's one of the reasons Paul is writing this letter to his true son in the faith, are you embarrassed of me? We get to verse 13 and Paul encourages Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know well all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Look back at verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul says to Timothy, I've given you a pattern. I've given you an outline of the truth of the gospel. The gospel is God's plan for the ages now revealed in Christ Jesus. And the now what? Because Jesus has come to earth, opened up the kingdom of God for us, invited us into his kingdom, paid the admission price with his death and resurrection. And he's promised to return because all of that has happened. 
Now, how do we live? Paul says, I've given you the pattern. I've given you the outline. If if any of you work with wood, uh, you know how much easier it is to build something if you have a pattern to use. If you're just freehanding something, it's very difficult to actually make straight lines, to make straight cuts. A pattern is so helpful. Paul says, I've given you that pattern. It's a pattern of sound words, healthy words, sound truth, essentially the whole truth. I've not kept anything back from you. I've given you something trustworthy. Something that you can build your life on. Something solid. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. Paul says, I've told you the truth. And more than I've told you the truth, I've, I've lived it out in front of you. I'm not one of these hypocrites that say one thing and do another. I'm not one of those pastors we see on television or read about on the internet who have built such large ministries and then we find out maybe they weren't exactly who they had said to be. This whole time, Paul says, you've heard it from me and and I'm trustworthy. I've I've given you the pattern. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So so Paul says, I've given you the the what, the the what you believe. And it's trustworthy. But we surround that what with a how. In faith in Christ and in the love of Christ. Christ. If we did a survey among Houstonians today and say, why are you not a part of a Jesus community? I would guess a very small percentage would say, you know, I've actually read a lot about world religions. I've read the difference between the Christian faith and Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism. And I've read about atheism and agnosticism. I've read about all of it. And I've decided that Christianity is not a credible religion. I would guess a very small percentage of people would would tell us that's why they're not here among us. The, The vast majority of people would say, well, and then they would have a story. I used to go to church and then they would tell us a story. I used to work with some Christians and then they would tell us a story. And my parents had faith and then they would tell us a story. The how we live undermines the what we believe. Paul says to Timothy, I've given you sound, healthy, whole words that you can build your life on. I've given you a pattern. You've seen it in me. You've heard it from me. Now do it in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. In the first half of the Bible, which is what we're in, if you're a guest with us tonight, we're trying to, as a church, read through the scripture. The goal isn't to read every single sentence of the scripture, which is great news because most of us have already messed up. The goal is to get to the end of the year and say, I read more of God's word this year than I ever have before. And so we've just finished Genesis. If you, if you didn't quite finish Genesis, that's all right. There's, a, there's always tomorrow. We'll start in Exodus. We're turning the corner. When we get to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Second Chronicles, we're going to see that King David wants to build a house for God. Because up until that time, God lived in a tent that he had prescribed at the end of Exodus, which is the book that we're reading now, um, for, for, for him to dwell in. That's what he said, I'm going to dwell in this tent. Now, the Israelites knew that God is everywhere. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Uh, there's nowhere that you can escape his presence, Psalm 139 says. But he did give himself an address, first a tent in the wilderness. But then later on, King David wants to build him an actual house on a mountain in Jerusalem. David doesn't get to do it, but David's son Solomon does. And so for much of the Old Testament, if you wanted to go and visit God, you had to go to one of those two places. You had to go to the tent 
in the wilderness or you had to go to the temple in Jerusalem. Also, if you wanted to meet somebody who was filled with the Spirit of God, there were very few people in the first half of the Bible who could say that. People like King David, who God unusually empowered for a very specific mission. So if you wanted to visit God, you had to go to a specific place. If you wanted to see someone filled with the Spirit of God, you had to go to a specific person. That's the good news of the New Testament. Jesus has opened up both things to us. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says now that we have been saved by Christ's death and resurrection, we are actually the temple of God. And so if you want to go and visit the presence of God, you just look in the mirror if you are a follower of Jesus. That's where God lives. And if you want to meet somebody filled with the scripture, filled with the spirit, you find someone who has followed Christ because that's a gift Jesus has given us. He says, when I go away, I'm going to send you a helper. I'm going to send you a counselor, a comforter who's going to come, who's going to guide you into the truth, who's going to convict you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What was just for a very small group of people, what was in a specific place, now has been made available to all. So Paul says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, if you've found a way to follow Jesus that does not require the Holy Spirit, I don't think that you are following Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The deposit Paul's talking about is Timothy's salvation by Jesus' death and resurrection and his ministry. We know by the end of this letter, Paul expects not to make it. He, he doesn't think he's going to get out of jail. He, he says, I've finished my race I'm a cup that's being poured out. This is the end for me. But he hopes his ministry will carry on with Timothy because God has made a deposit in Timothy and the scripture says it's a good deposit. God has also made that same deposit in all of us. So matter, no matter what your 2019 has started out like, even if there are bad things going on, God has made a good deposit in you. Your salvation and your purpose in this world. And Paul tells Timothy to guard it. To, to protect it, to be vigilant in overseeing it. Verse 15, and you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. The Asia Paul is talking about, we know as Western Turkey. The leading city at the time in the first century was Ephesus. And Paul says everybody in this whole region, now he's painting with a pretty broad broad brush it could be that he's using using a little bit of hyperbole to make his point but what he says is everybody in this region has abandoned me now what makes this especially heart-wrenching is in Acts chapter 20 Paul is sailing to Jerusalem and he believes that when he gets to Jerusalem something bad is going to happen. Probably he's going to be arrested. He, he had a sense of that himself. And then also some of the prophets in the, the New Testament church there had delivered that message to him. And so he knows he's sailing into a dangerous situation. And he was right, in fact. He got arrested in Jerusalem as a way to protect him because there was a mob coming to kill him, uh, which is hilarious. You get arrested to save your life. And he spends a long time uh, under Roman uh, rule and, and, and prison, essentially. And he's shipwrecked and lots of tragedy happens to Paul once he gets to Jerusalem but as he's sailing he stops in a a port city and the Ephesian leaders remember if if Ephesus was in western Turkey 
This is the region Paul's talking about. The Ephesian leaders come to meet him in the port. So you can imagine uh, leaders from Bayou City um, meeting someone in Galveston. They traveled down there to say goodbye to him. They believed they weren't going to see him ever again. And in Acts chapter 20, it says they come around Paul, they fall on him, and they just weep together. So an incredibly intimate picture in Acts chapter 20. But now these years later, Paul is saying, everybody in that region has abandoned me. They've turned away from me. So this isn't just strangers, essentially, who are giving him the cold shoulder. Um, these are people that he cares about. These are people that he's cried with. These are people that, that once loved him. And then he names two specific people, puts them on blast. Phygelus and Hermogenes. Paul's going to drop a lot of names that he's frustrated with in this letter. He mentions these two by name because they were probably the ringleaders. They were the, one, the ones instigating this turning away. They were probably the ones sharing this story. Um, you know, Paul's not in prison because of the gospel. Paul's in prison because he... He's kind of a jerk. Paul's in prison because he's a little too bold. Paul's in prison because he doesn't have good people skills. And so he says, these two who were once with us and with me have abandoned and turned away. Verse 16, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. So in comparison, Paul mentions this man, Onesiphorus. I would love some respect about how well I'm doing on pronouncing these names. It's harder than it looks. I'm practiced all week. Paul pushes forward Onesiphorus. And he says, in comparison, thank God for him. And, and I want mercy and good things for Onesiphorus' household because they've shared him with me. For Onesiphorus to come and visit him was not a, hey, let me pop over to what was most likely Rome and Check on Paul, see how he's doing, and, and I'll be back tonight, or even I'll be back next weekend. It was probably months and months and months that Onesiphorus' family and his church family lent him to the Apostle Paul. And it says that he refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Now the stakes were high for Onesiphorus to come and visit Paul. Because if you were a prisoner in the Roman Empire in the first century, Rome did not care about you. In fact, they probably just assumed that you were guilty. There were no prisoner rights. There was no prisoner advocacy. There was no one looking out for justice of those who had been innocently um, convicted or accused. If you were in prison, you were essentially on your own. They were going to give you the bare minimum of the bare minimum. And so you were dependent on the kindness of your friends and family to keep on visiting you in prison to bring you basic necessities. Rome was not spending a lot of money to make sure that Paul had three square meals a day. If they were feeding him at all, it would have been a miracle. So when it says that Onesiphorus refreshed Paul, he probably means that literally. Definitely metaphorically, but probably literally. Onesiphorus probably brought a care package from his home and from his church family to give to Paul. But it wasn't easy for him to find Paul. At the end of the, the book of Acts, Paul is also in prison, but it's a different kind of prison. He's under house arrest, still, uh, house arrest, still by the Roman Empire, but it's a much happier, peppier kind of prison. People are coming to visit Paul. They're having gospel conversations. People are coming to Christ. He's witnessing to the soldiers who are there about the greatness of Christ and how they should give their lives to Christ. He writes to the Philippians while in prison, like good things are happening among the Roman guard. People are actually coming to faith in Jesus, excuse me. But this prison is much different. Onesiphorus has to look for him because people aren't visiting Paul. He's probably tucked away in a dungeon, probably, probably literally in chains this time. 
But Onesiphorus didn't give up. He actually went the extra mile to find his friend and refresh him. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, there's Phygelus and Hermogenes, and then there's Onesiphorus who went the extra mile. When was the last time you went the extra mile for someone? Not just the mile you were obligated to go, but the extra mile. Not just the mile you were guilted into, but the over and above. Onesiphorus searched diligently and didn't give up until he found Paul. Verse 18, and may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So Paul is telling Timothy something Timothy probably doesn't know. Onesiphorus couldn't find me. It wasn't easy for him, but he searched for me and found me. Then he's reminding Timothy of something he does know about Onesiphorus. You know firsthand, you were an eyewitness to just how much good he did in Ephesus. And he says in verse 18, May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. So the Lord is mentioned two times. Probably the first Lord is Jesus, the Son of God, and the second Lord is God the Father. May Jesus the Son grant him to find mercy from God the Father on that day. It's a capital D. The day of Jesus' return when he renders reward and judgment. There are a couple of things I would love for you to write down and remember with me tonight. Things that we can learn from Timothy and Onesiphorus and Phygelus and Hermogenes. Number one. We need to value gospel truth with faith and love. We need to value gospel truth with faith and love. Paul says in verse 13, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. The sound words, the healthy words, the whole words. If you're my age, you remember when we were kids in in school, they taught us about a balanced diet. Uh, There was even a a pyramid at one time. And essentially it was just be cool about eating. Just be cool. Nothing fancy. Just be cool. Eat a little bit of meat. Eat a little bit of dairy. Eat a little bit of grains and breads. Now you couldn't say that today. Actually, if you recommend grains and breads in our culture, you go to jail. Just straight to jail. There's, there's There's no due process. It's the one thing in the Constitution now. It's just straight to jail. But when we were younger, you could have a little bit of bread. It wasn't a big deal, right? A little bit of bread, a little bit of eggs, a little bit of fruit, a little bit of vegetables. If you just ate a balanced diet, that was, that was good. Now we have gimmicks. And that, I don't mean that in disrespect. I, I just mean there's, there's something specific, right? Um, like I, a, a long time ago, I was looking to shed a few pounds because I wanted the V. Um, but I've... <laughs> I've also been very clear uh, that I don't want to work out or eat right. So I went to Google. And at the time, Google was young at this time, I found that if you drink vegetable juice instead of eating food, that you get the V. And so I went and bought carrot juice and I drank exactly one can and then I went to Taco Bell. Uh, somebody this morning did tell me if you had actually drank a lot of carrot juice, it would have helped with your complexion, which I was like, thank you, I, I guess, thank you. Why do you go to church here? Uh, I'm just kidding. 
I didn't say that. That's what I was thinking, but that's, I didn't say that out loud. That's what we have. We have now, you know, not, now if you have a medical reason for a specific diet, that's different. But what most of us are looking for in these fads and gimmicks and these specifics is a way to cheat. Right? I, don't, I don't really want to change. Just give me a trick. Give me an easy way to accomplish a hard goal. Right? And we do that same thing spiritually. Paul says, I, I gave you sound words. I, I gave you literally healthy words. But what most of us are looking for is a, is a trick. Give me a cheat. I want to be like Onesiphorus, approved of when Jesus returns, but I don't want the 365 daily grind of faithfulness. I don't want to read through the Bible. I don't want to read Leviticus. Nahum, Habakkuk, this don't even sound real. I don't want to read through that. Just, just, uh, just tell me I, I can read Philippians and everything is in there and 15 minutes I'm good. I, I want a gimmick. Don't tell me about routine, consistent, disciplined, daily prayer. Don't tell me about that. Uh, tell me about a phrase that you've stumbled upon that if I just add it to the end of my prayer, I get whatever I want. That's what I'm looking for. I, I want the cheat code. I want the shortcut. I want the fad. I want the gimmick. Don't, don't tell me about a balanced spiritual diet of scripture, prayer, obedience, repeat. Scripture, prayer, obedience. I don't want that. But Paul says, I've given you the, the pattern of these healthy words. You and I don't need to freehand. We don't need to make it up as we go along. God has, God has given us the truth. It's bankable truth. It's solid truth. And we need to value it. But we value it in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That, that's our motive. There are lots of bad motives to doing the right thing in the house of God. Approval is a bad motive to do the right thing. We want God's approval, so we try to do everything we can because we think it will make him love us more or start loving us or we get approval from one another. Most of us are not getting approval at work. A lot of us are not getting approval at home. A lot of us didn't get approval from our parents, at least not the kind that we were longing for. But here in church, you can get approval if you do these things. If you come and play the part, if, if you do the right things and you just let that out a little bit, let people know that, you get all kinds of approval. But that's a bad reason to do the right thing. Some of us do the right thing because we're competitive. There are groups of people, God forbid, other Christians that we don't like, that we think we're better than. So we try to out-obey them, not because of faith and love, but to win, to prove ourselves. Some of us do the right thing for the bad reason of habit. Our parents did it. We did it. Now we're doing it. And we hope our kids do it. But we've never pondered what it means for Jesus to be resurrected from the dead. Do we even believe that? We've never looked at it straight on. 
we got to wrap the what we believe in the right how. Filled with faith in Christ and filled with the love that is found in Christ Jesus. Those are the good reasons to do the good thing. Second thing I want you to write down. Be warned by bad examples and learn from good examples. Paul puts two paths in front of Timothy. Remember, he wonders, Timothy, which direction are you going? He tells him, don't be ashamed of me and don't be ashamed of Christ earlier in chapter one. So he says, Timothy, you can go one of two directions. You can go the way of Phygelus and Hermogenes, or you can go the way of Onesiphorus. Those same paths are in front of us today. But he throws in a little bit of the why to Timothy. It's subtle, but we've already mentioned it in verse 18. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Paul says about Onesiphorus, when Jesus returns and on the day of judgment, Onesiphorus is going to be rewarded. The son is going to speak up about Onesiphorus to the father. Paul says the same thing is going to happen to him at the end of this letter. As I mentioned, he says, I finished my race. I'm I'm a cup poured out. And what's waiting on me is a crown of life, a crown of righteousness. And he wants that for Timothy. So he's saying, choose the way of Onesiphorus. Anytime we start talking about Jesus' return, I feel like I should be wearing a sandwich board and a holding a sign that says the end is near because you can't talk about it with, without being super weird. But it is the dominant theme of the second half of the Bible. It is one of the weirder things about us that we believe that someone was resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven and is coming back again. But as surely as we sit here, I am convinced that he is coming back. And when he comes back, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, all will be revealed. And in that chapter, Paul's talking about those who, who offer their life as something good, something meaningful, something that will survive that day of judgment, which Paul talks about metaphorically as fire. And he says, some people are building up God's people, are accomplishing the mission with precious gems, gold and silver. And when the fire of Jesus return comes, what they've built will survive. Those precious gems are going to survive. But others of us are offering wood, hay, and straw. And the fire of Jesus' return is just going to burn all that up. It doesn't mean it was bad stuff. It just is not going to survive. It won't matter on the day Jesus returns. But there are things that we can do today that will matter on that day. And Paul's words all the way through to Timothy and his word to us tonight, by the Spirit of God, is we want to invest our lives today in things that will survive that day. That's why we have to always be thinking about Jesus' return to bring us back to what will really matter so we don't get choked out by the cares and worries of this world so that Satan doesn't come and 
steal the good seed that God is sowing into our lives so that we don't have rocky and shallow soil where our faith springs up really fast, but as soon as things get difficult, we just, we just fall away and we fade away and we let off the gas pedal. We need to be thinking, what are the precious jewels and gems, the gold and silver? I want to spend my life doing those things like Onesiphorus. Not live my life built on hay and wood and straw like the other two. So he says to Timothy, which path are you going to choose? That's what God is saying to us tonight. We'll pick up with chapter 2, verse 1, next Sunday night. Let's pray.